Good morning once again to all of you, and happy Easter. Uh, on that note, let me ask you, invite you to open your Bibles uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Once you're, uh, if you want to use a pew Bible, it's on page 961. 1 Corinthians 15 in your Bibles. Last Sunday was Easter, and we celebrated, if you were here, and we rang our bells, and we shouted hallelujah because of the real hope from the real resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we considered last week, if all of it, if, if the whole resurrection story had just been a, a big fraud or had just been a myth, then all of our hope and all of our faith would just be a fraud and a myth. But we believe with certainty, we believe with certainty that Jesus is alive. And we believe that his death and his resurrection are, are the very pinnacles of victory and triumph for him, and that by grace, Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection are therefore uh, pinnacles of triumph for us too. Now, if you were here last week, we looked at the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15, and we heard Paul point out to us what he described as the matters of first importance, matters of first importance, and they were that Jesus died, Jesus rose, and Jesus appeared. He really did. And as I pointed out last week, because of that, it means that the shockwaves uh, from Easter, from Jesus' resurrection, the shockwaves explode out in all directions across all of human history. So in this one chapter that we're looking at last week and today and up until Pentecost, in this one chapter, it's a fairly long chapter if you have it in front of you, the Apostle Paul draws our attention to Jesus' resurrection as a certainty and to our resurrection as a certainty and to all of this talk then about the resurrection about Jesus' resurrection and ours as not being optional, not even being theoretical, but real and central. And it's all held together in the resurrected Christ himself. This should go without saying, but I'll say it anyways, because it's worth always saying, that at the center of our faith is a living, breathing resurrected King Jesus. Amen. You might recognize these words. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Say it with me. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We say it every week in our liturgy. It's worth pointing out, though, that that second clause that we just said, it doesn't say Christ has risen, even though we certainly believe that he has but it's much more precise than that. What we say is Christ is risen. Christ is risen. It is his present and it is his eternal state, risen. I pointed out last week very briefly this occasion in Revelation chapter 1 where Jesus points out to John that in his hand he holds the keys to death and Hades. But hear the whole quote, the whole quote from Jesus there in uh, Revelation 1, 17 and 18. 
is how Jesus introduces himself to John. Quote, fear not, I am the first and the last, now catch this, and the living one, the living one. I died and behold, he says it again, I am alive forevermore and I hold the keys to death and Hades. That's how Jesus introduces himself to John. If Jesus had a business card to pull out and hand you, would say, Jesus Christ, the living one, forevermore. That's how he introduces himself. Risen is not just a past action. Yes, he has risen. Risen describes his present eternal reality. He is risen. And what 1 Corinthians 15 has to show us then is that the resurrection from the dead is not just something central about Jesus, but it's something that is quite central about us as well. So this is such good news for the believer. We can hear this today, that if Jesus is alive forevermore, it means that you will be alive forevermore. If Jesus has a resurrected body, I think you can see where I'm going here, it means that you are going to have a resurrected body. If sin and death did not have the final word over Jesus, it means that sin and death do not have the final word over you. If Jesus' grave is empty, it means that one day your grave will be empty. So let me summarize here at the beginning. Either it's all true about Jesus, in which case it's all true for all who trust in Jesus, or it's all one big giant lie. If it's true, then we can shout hallelujah and ring our bells and celebrate Easter. But if it's a lie, then we're all dead. And that brings us to our text today, 1 Corinthians 15, 12, verses, uh, yeah, verses 12 through 19. And our approach to this text will be basically to take Paul's approach, which is a, a resurrection reflection. And with Paul, we will go almost disturbingly deep into reflection on what it would mean for us if the resurrection wasn't true. But then there's a flip side to that, which is a reflection on what it means for us if the resurrection is true. So we begin this resurrection reflection in verse 12, where we have our first indication that we are not in Philippians anymore uh, because Paul wants to strangle some of the Corinthians. Uh, in love, of course, I'm sure. But verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? How can you say this? He's saying, I know that's, that you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but are you kidding me, Corinthians? Are you kidding me? Are some of you seriously saying that then you won't rise from the dead. Are you kidding me, he's saying? Are you saying this? So it appears that for some of the Corinthians, some of their theology of the resurrection stopped with Jesus. Their celebration of Easter was only one day long. There were no shockwaves for them. They were happy to proclaim Jesus as risen from the dead, but they refused to make the connection to their own resurrection from the dead. They saw Easter, they saw the resurrection of Jesus as nothing more than a miracle, an individual miracle that Jesus performed on its own for its own sake. And Paul is flabbergasted 
I don't know if they had that word in the Greek, but I'm sure he would have used it if he had had it. He's flabbergasted. Quote, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Hmm. Imagine that uh, you wake up one morning and the sun is rising and it's time for your kids to get up and start getting ready for school. You open your child's bedroom door. You say, hey, wake up. You can see that they need more persuasion. So you might walk up to, let's say hypothetically, your teenager and put a hand on their shoulder and try to, try to nudge them awake. And you can see they still need more persuasion. So you throw open the curtains as proof. It's morning. The sun is up. But now imagine that your child opens their eyes. They see the sun rising. Clearly the rays of sun are in their eyes. But they look at you quite convincingly and say, sure, the sun is up here, but the sun isn't up across the street. The sun isn't up down the road a couple miles. Mom, dad, the sun isn't up at my school. You might lose your mind in that moment. How can you say that the sun isn't up everywhere? How can you say that you see the beams of light in your eyes, but those beams aren't shining everywhere. It doesn't make any sense, and that's why Paul was losing his mind here. It doesn't make any sense for Christians to discount the resurrection as some kind of single miracle that was confined only to Jesus. Either the promise of the resurrection and the promise of our resurrection as a direct result of Jesus' resurrection is certain and is of the utmost importance or it is of no importance. Remember, remember that Jesus himself promised us resurrection. There's this one verse from John 14, verse 3. We read this often in funerals. Jesus says this, I go and prepare a place for you, and I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus promised this. Now, one verse, he promises his own resurrection. He promises heaven. He promises he will take us there with him, that he is the way to get there. Jesus promised us resurrection. Now, some may wish to discredit this promise. You know, we won't really experience resurrection. There's just no scientific proof of such a thing. That's silly. Others may wish to discount this promise. We can't possibly read ourselves into that story. Of course, Jesus could be raised. He was God after all. He's talking to the disciples there, his own followers. We can't read ourselves into this. Or we might uh, wish to disembody this promise of resurrection. You know, we should think about resurrection metaphorically, uh, not physically. Really what Jesus means, what the resurrection tells us is that our memories and our legacies will live on in the hearts and minds of those who, who think of us. No. <laughs> what our text teaches us, what the Bible teaches us, is that to discredit or to discount or to disembody the resurrection is to deny the resurrection. And when we deny the promise of our own resurrection, then we deny his. Our resurrection is connected to his resurrection. Resurrection is all or nothing. This is so amazing about Jesus that he has latched us to himself. 
He has purchased us for himself. He says we're his. He has hidden us in himself. And he has said, I will come for you. Now, this would be a good moment, I think, for me to just stop for a, a little intermission and define what we are and are not talking about. What we are talking about today is the eventual bodily resurrection of all people when Christ returns. This is a hopeful reality for those who are in Christ. This is a terrifying reality for those who are not in Christ. What we are not talking about today, but we will talk about it in future weeks, is what happens in what we refer to as the intermediate state. What happens immediately when we die? Our body is laid in the earth, but what about our souls between our bodily death and our bodily resurrection? What happens in the intermediate or the in-between state? We're not talking about that today, but suffice it to say, nothing can separate us from the love of God for those who are in Christ. Today, we're talking about the hopeful reality for the believer of our eventual bodily resurrection. So intermission over. That's what we're talking about today. So remember John 14, 3. Jesus has said, I will come for you. So at the center of our faith is a resurrected Jesus who promises a resurrected people. And Paul helps us to see as we read on that if there are no resurrected people, then there is no resurrected Jesus. And if there is no resurrected Jesus, then there is no point to anything. And this is the terrifying picture now that Paul paints for us in his resurrection reflection, sort of as a what if that he lays out in two different sections here. Verses 13 and 16 are almost exact duplicates. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, again, not even Christ has been raised. So in both of these verses and in the verses that follow them, Paul allows himself to think along the lines of those Corinthians for a moment who are saying that, you know, the resurrection was true about Jesus, but it wouldn't be true for them or for anyone else. And he thinks along their lines so he can point out the incredible problem that that line of thinking creates, which is this. We see it in both verses. Well, if that's the case, then not even Christ has been raised. As a result... Verses 14 and 15 begin to tell us, well, if that's the case, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. The resurrection of the dead must be an essential belief of believers because to deny the resurrection essentially invalidates that which is the validation of everything Jesus said and did. Jesus' resurrection validated that he was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Jesus' resurrection validated he was the Son of God who came not to condemn the world, but in order that through him the world might be saved. Jesus' resurrection validated that his sacrifice was acceptable to God, his sacrifice for sins. Because by not remaining dead, but by rising again, he validated that there was no penalty left for sin. 
This is what Paul is saying. If we deny the resurrection of the dead, we invalidate the validation. And so our preaching would be in vain. Every preacher who's ever stood in any pulpit is a liar. Augustine, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, Billy Graham, Jamie Brown, Mike Seawright, we're all liars. We're all liars. And then our faith would be in vain. The Bible's in your pews or in your home, the verses you've memorized, the prayers you've prayed, the hymns you've sung, all the hymns ever written, all the sacrifices of all the martyrs, they'd all be completely worthless if Jesus had not been raised. And without the resurrection of the dead, by invalidating the resurrection of Christ, verse 15 says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. What Paul's insinuating here is that even God himself would would have to be a liar if Jesus had not been raised. All the apostles did was testify what God said he would do. Remember last week, we looked at verses three and four in 1 Corinthians 15, where uh, Paul says that the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ were all, quote, according to the scriptures. So then if we're saying that God raised Jesus from the dead, but he really didn't, it means that God is a liar and we're all lying about the liar. Paul pushes this even further. In verses 17 and 18, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So imagine if every teacher or professor of every class or lecture you ever took came in here right now and said to you, oops, um, there's been a huge mistake. We've gone back and done an academic audit of every class, every subject, every final exam you ever took and realized you never passed any of them, even back to preschool. (laughs) And then every principal or every president of any school or university that you've ever attended came in after them and took back all your report cards, all of your diplomas, all your drawings of dinosaurs. (laughs) That hurts, doesn't it? Even the dinosaurs. All of your degrees, every passing grade that had ever been conferred upon you, some of you more than others, some of you less than others, has been rescinded. You're now fired from your job, your house, your car, your savings, your health benefits, all taken from you. All the money you've ever earned from all the jobs you've ever had because they're based on a fraud has now been taken from you. And so now you're expected to earn it all back, work your way back through school, starting at the beginning, learn your ABCs, and do it all without any assistance whatsoever. Some of you have had nightmares that resemble this. (laughs) Because this is the stuff of nightmares. And this is the, the nightmarish resurrection reflection that Paul has permitted us to consider for a moment. If Christ had not been raised, then you're still in your sins. Nothing is credited to you. None of your sins have been forgiven. The cross was a waste. Jesus' blood was wasted. You're still under the curse of the law. You're in so much debt, and you are in such a state of spiritual death, you can't even fathom it if Christ had not been raised. And the terrible end of all this in verse 18 is just plain and simple death of nothingness after life. It's all empty without the resurrection. All of life is pointless if Christ had not been raised. All of our sins remain upon us. All the scriptures themselves, all the apostles' teaching, all that God has said is worthless if Christ has not been raised. 
All of our faith, all of our prayers, every sermon ever preached, all of our hope is baseless. Paul sums up this disturbing reflection of this what if in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But enough of this nonsense. <laughs> Let me preach the gospel to us for about 90 seconds if I can here. Because at the center of our faith is a living, breathing, resurrected King Jesus. We proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We do not only have hope in Christ in this life only. We are not of all people most to be pitied. We have hope in Christ forever. The resurrection is true. Jesus is alive. So the resurrection is central and essential to us because Jesus lives. So here's the flip side of all this. Because if it's true, and since it's true, the living one himself, Jesus Christ, says to us that our preaching is true. Every time you've heard the gospel preached or the word proclaimed, you have heard God's honest truth. Jesus says this means your faith is true. Every prayer you've ever prayed, every time you've clung to Jesus, even though you can't see him but you trust him, you have not done, done so in vain. Jesus says, because he's risen, he validates the word of God is true. Every word, every promise it contains, every iota, every dot will remain until all is accomplished. Jesus says that forgiveness is true because he has been resurrected. Every sin has been nailed to the cross and done away with and buried in the grave and atoned for by his blood. Jesus says, because he's resurrected, that it is finished is true. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in you. From life's first cry when you're a baby to final breath, Jesus commands your destiny. And Jesus says that eternal life is true. As Paul said in Philippians, to depart and be with Christ, oh, that is better by far. So how can you say there is no resurrection from the dead? Jesus has latched our resurrection to his. And if his is true, ours has got to be true. And praise God, it's all true for all who are in Christ. Amen? God's promises are true. And if there's just one point of application from this sermon today, that's it. Trust that God's promises are true. Because of the resurrection, because God raised Jesus from the dead, and because God will raise your dead body from the dead, it means you can trust all of God's promises, the big ones, even the little ones. Do you have a hard time trusting God's promises? Do you have a hard time trusting that God is good? Do you have a hard time trusting God in the big things or in the little things? Remember the resurrection. A few weeks ago, Catherine and I had plans to go out with a uh, another couple for lunch one afternoon. Uh, we had everything lined up for it to work. We had someone lined up to be at home with our kids. We'd go, up for, uh, go out for a couple hours. But at the last um, minute, the other couple had to cancel on us. But we, uh, we decided to go out anyways. And me being the romantic person that I am, um, I said, hey, Catherine, on the way to lunch, how about we go do a hospital visit first? <laughs> so, so we did. Um, we had a nice visit with a wonderful person who's now doing just fine. 
And on the way out of the ER, uh, we turned a corner, and there in front of me were the wide open double doors into the trauma room where seven years ago, this past Thursday, we lost my dad. I had not seen inside that room since that terrible night. And so I just stopped, and there was the bed, and there was the floor. I remembered the floor. And there was the equipment. And there was a little step up where some of the technicians sit. There it all was. And it all came back. All the memories from that terrible night from seven years ago came back to me. But as I stood there, looking at the empty trauma room, I thought of the empty tomb. I did. And I thought of the words of the angel. He is not here. He is risen. These are words of real hope. These are words of real promise, of real life, because of a real resurrection. Words that apply to every person and every body, literally every body who is in Christ. It has got to be true. It's true for my dad, it's true for me, it's true for you, true for every sinner who has placed their trust in Jesus Christ. The resurrection has got to be true for us or else it's not true for Jesus. But since it's true for Jesus, praise God, it's true for us, amen? So we can, amen, amen, amen. Praise God. Praise God. So, and I'll close here, so. We can face our physical death then, everything in between it. We can face the death of those we love. And we can know and trust that at the moment of our death, because of Jesus' victory over death, nothing can separate us from him. Our souls are immediately with Christ, even as our bodies fall asleep. We can know and trust then that at the sound of the trumpet, and it might be today, someday soon when Jesus' trumpet sounds, because of Jesus' resurrection, we will also experience physical resurrection. And this is not optional or theoretical. After all, we sang this last week. He died eternal life to bring, and he lives. Why? That death may die. What Jesus has done is he has stretched out his hands to you and he's offered you eternal life and freedom and forgiveness. And that offer is validated in those hands themselves. The offer is validated in the hands and the validation is stamped in those hands. The scars of the nails and the offer is validated in the blood that now runs through those veins. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for the beams of light that now shine upon this world from your risen sun. Would you please shine those beams of light upon our hearts and into this church? 
shine your light, O God, the light of your resurrected Son upon the lost, that they would not perish in their sins. Father, by your Spirit, please point us to Christ. We would, as we say most weeks, look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Lord, fix our eyes on the living one who is alive forevermore, we pray. Amen. Before we say the creed, I'd ask you to stand. And let's just sing with our voices uh, this verse we sang earlier. Come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the Lord of life. It's the fourth verse. Uh, Patrick, if you want to pull it up, of come behold the wondrous mystery. Let's sing this together to get it into our souls. Come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope. Christ in power, resurrected as we will. When he 